Good evening. My name is Josh. I will be reading the verse today from Mark chapter 2, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 6. You can find this on page 1004 in the Church Bibles. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and disciples of Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch on unshrunk cloth and on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine in new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisee said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he was when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the cons- consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And as he and he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to them, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and the hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Uh, Remember, if you can, back to two weeks, three weeks, four weeks ago, what we've looked at so far. As we've started Mark's gospel, Jesus has burst on the scene, and with him he brings a message of good news. We've seen his authority in calling disciples. We've seen him healing people. We look closely at his healing of the man with leprosy, at his encounter with the paralyzed man, as he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And this week, we see a slight change. This week, we see him engaging in conflict with the religious leaders. He comes to confront the establishment. He comes to confront the norms. He comes to confront religion. Now, it won't take you by surprise that not many in society today are interested in religion. Often the view can be that religion is just rules that can spoil our fun. And and so often they can put Jesus into the same bracket. 
Jesus, religion, they go hand in hand. It's just rules that spoil our fun. Maybe that's you this evening. Maybe you're here and you're looking into Christian things. You're not sure if you're a Christian. And, and one of the barriers is you just look at it and you go, it just doesn't look that attractive. Maybe you're here and you've grown up in a Christian family and, and you've spent your life coming to church and you're just not yet convinced. Well, in these passages this evening, we see a different Jesus. We see a Jesus who's prepared to confront religion, who says, that is not what I'm about. After seeing in the last few weeks the mercy that Jesus shows to the man with leprosy, to the paralyzed man, to the tax collectors and sinners, this week we see a different side to Jesus. We see a Jesus who goes on the offensive against the religious leaders and the Pharisees. We see a series of conflict passages. And in each of the three sections that we're going to look at this evening, as well as the last two, the same sequence has happened in each of them. We've had something has happened, then the teachers of the law or the Pharisees challenge Jesus, they question him, and then Jesus responds to them. We saw it with the paralyzed man, we saw it with the tax collectors and sinners, and we see it in the three sections that we'll look at this evening where Jesus comes to challenge the norms of religious life. You see, Jesus comes with something different. He offers us something new. He offers us something attractive. He offers us something that is worth having and that's worth sharing with others. And so it's worth having a look at. So let's look at these three encounters about what Jesus offers. And as we go through, remember, we've got the pigeonhole link behind me. So do send in your questions as we spend time uh, looking at those a little bit later. Three encounters, three things Jesus offers. Here's the first. It's Jesus, not religion. It's Jesus, not religion. In this first encounter, Jesus is challenged about his attitude to and his lack of fasting. Fasting is, is seen as an expression of, of one's longing for God. And so in the Old Testament, uh, the people of God were called to fast for one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But as the Old Testament progresses and, and the people are longing for God to come in the Messiah, the number of days fasting increased. And the Pharisees, up to this point, wanted people to fast two days a week. And so when confronted about fasting, or when confronted about the lack of fasting, Jesus responds by giving us three pictures. And all of these pictures point to himself. The first picture we see is the, is the bridegroom, verse 19. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Jesus gives us a picture of a wedding, a day of celebration and joy. A day when, if you've been to a wedding or you yourself have got married, the focus is on the couple. Everything is about them. Everyone wants to speak to them. Everyone wants to take a photo of them. By the end of the day, they've had a permanent smile on their face. They've got sore cheeks from smiling all day. Could you imagine a wedding that was a fast? 
No wedding breakfast, no wedding cake, no champagne or Prosecco. Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. The focus should be on me. And so because the bridegroom is now here, it's a time of celebration, not mourning. It's a time of feasting, not fasting. Fasting does have its right place, but Jesus says that's not now. And by using this picture of the bridegroom, Jesus isn't just picking some random nice picture to share with the Pharisees. He's making a big claim. You see, in the Old Testament, this picture of a marriage was used to describe the relationship between God and the people of Israel. And the Old Testament prophets speak about how the people of Israel have broken the marriage covenant. They've been unfaithful to God. They've cheated on him. And yet in Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of God coming as a husband for his unfaithful bride. And so Jesus is saying, the bridegroom you are waiting for, he's here. So celebrate. Jesus is the bridegroom. It's all about him. And then Jesus gives two more pictures, two more analogies to show what he is doing in coming. Verses 21 and 22. And, and I must admit, I'm, I'm getting into uncharted territory here. I know nothing about sowing. I know nothing about home brewing. But here's what I think Jesus is getting at when he uses these pictures. He's giving a contrast between old and new. And he's warning about the dangers of mixing them together. So he says, a new patch of cloth that is sewn onto an old, already shrunk garment, well, when you wash it, the new patch will shrink, making the tear even worse in the garment. Or new wine would ferment and would stretch the wineskins. And so when new wine is poured into old wineskins that are already stretched, well, the skins would burst and the new wine would spill and be lost. Jesus is saying the old is incompatible with the new. The new wine that Jesus is bringing, this new kingdom of God, this gospel of good news, it cannot just simply be poured into the old wineskins of Judaism. Jesus is saying, if you try to treat me or to relate to me with the old way of doing things, it just will not work. You see, he's not come to just reform or, or patch up Israel's religion. He's come to fulfill it. He's come to transform it, to bring in something new. It still has a relationship with the, with the old, but it's fulfilled. It's new in that Jesus brings it to its climax, to its fulfillment, its total transformation. This morning, around 10,000 miles away from here, England cricket team were competing in the final of the T20 World Cup. I mentioned it this morning not knowing at all how the game was going, um, so the illustration could have broken down. But, spoiler for you if you don't follow it, this is out of order of me, but surely you'd know the result by now. Uh, we won, so the illustration works. Um, so here, um, if you know anything about English cricket and their one-day team, it's been quite a journey. Seven years ago in 2015, they were embarrassingly dropped out beaten of the World Cup in Australia. 
And they decided they needed change. A total transformation was needed of the way that they approach the cricket games. And it wasn't a completely out with the old, in with the new. No five players that played in 2015 played today in this final. But they needed a transformation. Uh, the change of how they approached the games. A change in the mentality they had. A change in the type of player they would pick to play. And there was total change. And so since then, they've got to at least the semi-final of every tournament they've entered. And now they're the first nation ever, men's nation, to hold both the 50-over World Cup and the 20-over World Cup. That might mean nothing to you, but that is impressive, I assure you. You see, it's not a new thing to add to the old thing. It's a new thing that fulfills and transforms the old thing. Jesus brings in a new age that is all about him. It's all about joy and celebration. So what does that look like for you? If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, are you looking at religion? Can I challenge you to look at Jesus? If you're here and you would call yourself a Christian, is, is all you do centered around this man, Jesus? Can I ask you the question, is it, is it Jesus or religion that shapes your life? Jesus says it's about him, not religion. And then the next two encounters we have with Jesus, in both of them he's challenged about the Sabbath. And in both of them we see the same sequence. Something happens, there's a challenge or a question, and Jesus responds. And in the first encounter we see Jesus brings, brings rest, not rules. Jesus brings rest, not rules. Jesus and his disciples are challenged about picking the ears of corn on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the um, last day of the Jewish week, the Saturday, which was set aside for rest, so no work was allowed. And in this particular instance, um, people weren't allowed to work for food. They weren't allowed to plant their crops. They weren't allowed to harvest their crops on the Sabbath. However, there was an Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 23, which allowed people to be able to pick up the grain or corn on the Sabbath as a means of provision of hunger. So the poor were, it was made sure that the poor wouldn't go without food. And that seems to be what's happening here. And yet it seems as if the Pharisees are kind of just peeking around the corner as, as the kind of Sabbath moral police, just trying to catch Jesus out, accuse him of something. And so they accuse him and his disciples of doing what is unlawful. And Jesus responds in verse 25 to 28, and he gives three responses. And in his three responses, he tells them to look at three different things. First, he says in verses 25 to 26, he says, look at the Old Testament. Jesus speaks of an incident with David and his companions in 1 Samuel 21. They're hungry. They're in need. And so they, they go into and eat the consecrated bread. The priest who will know the law allows David and his companions to come in and eat the bread that would have been consecrated on the Sabbath. David and his companions needed food. And so the priests saw the spirit of the law rather than just the letter of the law. 
But Jesus points back to this more than just to give a simple example to push back at the Pharisees. No, Jesus, by using this example, is also pointing to who he is. He uses David almost by saying, do you remember David, King David, your greatest ever king? Well, you wouldn't dispute him, right? See who I am. I am the greater king. I am the king that that David was pointing forward to. I am the Messiah king that you are waiting for. Why are you disputing me? Look to the Old Testament. Second look in verse 27. He says, look to the Sabbath, verse 27. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It's for our good. It's for our renewing, our refreshing, our rest. Not the other way round. But the Pharisees have got it completely the other way round. They act as if it's the Sabbath that should be served. But actually, the Sabbath is there to serve man. God created Sabbath for the well-being of humans. The Pharisees have turned the goodness of the Sabbath upside down. The Sabbath was made for renewal, for rest, for worship. The Pharisees have made the Sabbath a burden. They let the tail wag the dog, as the saying goes. Jesus says, look at the Sabbath. And then final look, final response of Jesus in verse 28. He says, look at me. (laughs) What a statement Jesus makes in verse 28. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Son of Man, that's that title that Jesus uses for himself that we saw two weeks ago. A title used in the Old Testament to talk about God's coming king. And so Jesus uses it to describe himself. And he says, I am in charge of the Sabbath. I have fulfilled the Sabbath. And we see that now in two ways. First, Jesus changed the Sabbath. Following his resurrection on the first day of the week, as we see it recorded later in Mark, the Christian Sabbath rest becomes the Sunday, the first day of the week. And so we see in Acts of the early church that they meet on the, and gather together on the first day of the week. And so the church throughout history has continued to gather together on a Sunday. And so there is a call to, to keep Sunday special. I wonder how you can ensure that, that Sunday remains a, a blessing, not a burden. But Jesus is saying, don't make Sunday so special that it becomes all about Sunday. No, because the Sabbath is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is designed for rest, for the restoring of our soul. And so Jesus in Matthew 11 says, find your rest in me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's not about Sunday. No, our Sunday rest helps point us to Jesus. Helps point us to the rest that we can find in him. And the irony in this passage is that the the Pharisees are the ones working on the Sabbath by turning the Sabbath into a work. They keep the Sabbath as a way of earning God's acceptance and his blessing. 
And Jesus says, come to me. Find your rest in me. And in Jesus, enjoy God's acceptance and his blessing. What will that look like for you? To keep your relationship with Jesus special? To let your Sundays point to him? I was reflecting on on my life, and I think this was a real challenge to me in my late teens. The danger that having grown up in church with loving Christian uh, parents, that Sundays became, I must do this, I mustn't do that. And actually the challenge to go, no, 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 let Sundays point me to Jesus and let my life be centered around him. And let every day be a Jesus day, not just Sundays. What will it look like to let every day be a Jesus day? Maybe looking forward, if you let me mention this now, looking forward to Christmas, what would it look like to maybe get hold of one of the Advent books and spend time every day just reflecting on that first coming of Jesus and that future second coming of Jesus? Letting every day be a Jesus day. It's about rest, not rules. And then in our final encounter, our final conflict with the religious leaders, we see it's about grace, not law. This is an incredible encounter. Verse 2, we're told explicitly that the Pharisees are looking for a way to catch Jesus out. And it's interesting, do you notice they don't doubt that Jesus can heal? They want to see if he would do it on the Sabbath. Do you notice that? It's not could he heal, it's would he heal. And Jesus wants to expose the Pharisees. He calls the man in front of everyone. He wants to use the situation to make a point. Do you notice how this confrontation with the Pharisees is is slightly different to the others? In all the others we've had so far, after um, after the situation happens, it's always the religious leaders or the Pharisees who ask the question. Chapter 2, verse 7, with the paralyzed man. Verse 16, with the tax collectors and sinners. Verse 18, when he's questioned about fasting. Verse 24, we've just looked at when he's questioned about the Sabbath. Yet here Jesus turns it on his head. Jesus asked the question. And you see, even in this passage alone, how the tables are turned. In verse 2, it's the Pharisees who are looking. They're the ones who want to accuse. Yet verse 5, Jesus is the one ending up looking at them. Verse 4, Jesus is the one asking the questions. The Pharisees want Jesus in the dock, and yet the Pharisees end up in the dock themselves. Jesus gets on that front foot. And so here is the challenge to the Pharisees, verse 4. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life, or to kill. Surely it's obvious, right? (laughs) Surely it's to do good, to, to save life. You see, to Jesus, people are more important than rules. And what's the Pharisees' response? Well, their response says everything. Silence. You see, here is the heart issue of the Pharisees. They miss the point of the law that it is for the good of the people. But the Pharisees don't care about the good of people. They care about the letter of the law. 
And so if the letter of the law stops doing good to people, then so be it. And so as one person said, the Sabbath is turned into a competition to see who can do nothing best. The Sabbath loses all meaning when it's disconnected from God's heart to bless his people. And so we see this angers Jesus. He's angered at their stubbornness, their hard-heartedness to Jesus. He says they're not interested in people, you're interested in rules. But that is not the gospel that I am bringing about. This is the gospel I'm bringing about. A gospel of grace. And so then, verse 5, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. It's grace, not law. Jesus is about people and goodness and life. The Pharisees are about law. Jesus came to show grace. The Pharisees say, you need to prove yourself good enough for God. What does that look like in practice? Well, one Christian writer describes it like this. Imagine two people looking to obey God and yet coming from two completely opposite paradigms. So both wanting to keep the Sabbath, but for one, obedience is a burden. It's an enslavement. For the other, it's a delight. It's a gift. How can this be? Well, for one, it's based on religion. It's based on rules. It's based on do. Whereas for the other, it's based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's based on grace. It's based on done. You see, obedience is still involved. But one says, if I perform, if I obey, only then will I be accepted. Whereas the other says, I am fully accepted in Christ. And so I can obey. Jesus says, I have saved you. It's been done for you. You are mine. So listen to me. It's the best thing for you. I mean, if we think about it in one sense, if I'm able to say this, it's ridiculous. It, 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 no other system in the world works like that. No other religion, not even any sphere of life. Think about it. You always need to work hard and perform to be accepted. Whether that's through school as you do your exams and getting the right grades to do, on, do the next thing. Whether it's getting the job or the performance in order to climb the ladder to get the pay rise or the promotion. Jesus decides to do it totally differently. He, he turns it on his head. He says, I've done it for you. It's a free gift. Just trust me and follow me. That is how you are accepted and loved and blessed and saved by God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found. He came looking and found me. It's nothing to do with anything I've done. Was blind, but now can see. It's grace versus law. Do you know this grace? If you do, don't move on from this grace. Because I think the danger can be for some Christians that whilst we start by grace, we know we're saved by grace. There's a danger of carrying on by law 
and thinking it's about what I need to do or not do now. No, to carry on with the song, "'Tis grace that's brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." And so as we finish, do you notice the final verse? It's an astonishing finish. As a result of the conflict we've seen, what does it drive the Pharisees to do? Verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Herodians are supporters of King Herod, the person who's in charge at the time, the person who wants to keep the peace, so they remain in charge. The Pharisees don't want the Herodians in charge. They're waiting for their Messiah to come and to get rid of them so he may rule. The Herodians definitely don't want a Messiah. The one thing they can agree on, neither of them want Jesus. It's an incredible alliance of two opposites coming together. And so do you see how Jesus' question in verse 4 cuts right to the heart of the Pharisees? Do good or evil in relation to this man? Shall we do good to him? Save life or kill in relation to the Pharisees who later on do end up answering the questions. They go off on the Sabbath and plot to kill. And Jesus hints at this departure in verse 20. He says, The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Sabbath rest was started by God right at the beginning of the Bible. As he finished his creating work, the Bible says he rested on the seventh day. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, it is finished. It has been done for you. And so now you can rest in the finished work of Christ. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you for how he comes to confront the establishment, confront the Pharisees, how he comes to fulfill religion and totally transform it, how he comes to provide rest, not rules, grace, not law. Father, please help us to see Jesus, to trust in him if we haven't already to carry on in him and in grace as we live the Christian life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've got some great questions, so thank you very, very much for all your questions. Some really, really good ones here. I'm, I'm not sure we're going to get through them all, but we'll do our best, see how we go, all right? So, we'll do the first one. Jesus <coughs> says that his disciples will fast when he's gone. Should we fast now? Because he's obviously now in heaven. Does that mean we should now all be fasting? Yeah, good. Um, I'm not avoiding the question. But just to say, um, I don't think this passage tells us the answer to that. I don't think that's the point Jesus is trying to make when he responds to the question on fasting. He wants to do something bigger and greater than that. He wants people to see who he is. Um, so I don't think this passage answers that question. However, I think the Bible does speak about fasting. It's interesting where Jesus speaks about fasting in Matthew. Um, it comes after a section about praying and talks about when you pray, 
dot, dot, dot. And then the next session says, when you fast. So there seems to be an expectation from Jesus that his followers then will fast. Um, I think there is a place for fasting today, um, but I think it is important to remember what fasting is um, and therefore what place it does have, what our motivation is in doing that. So remember what we said, fasting in the Old Testament was about a, a longing for God and a dependency on God. And as Caroline's just mentioned, Christ has come, so we're no longer waiting for the Messiah, we have the Messiah. However, we are in that kind of funny in-between stage of a now and not yet, and so we are still waiting for Jesus to come back. And so there may be a place of fasting to long for him. Um, Fasting is to kind of stop doing something that you might depend on so that it helps you depend on God more. I think a challenge with fasting is, one, not make it into a rule (laughs) that I must do it, and so if I do it, God will be more pleased with me. And we see Jesus hasn't come to do that. He's come to bring grace. And two, if we are to fast, whether that's fasting from food or something else that can get in the way of our dependence of God, to ensure that that time is used to depend on God more. I remember when I've fasted from food before, I found that most of the time, all I could think about was how hungry I was. And, and so it kind of took away from the purpose of fasting to, to help me depend on God more. And so I found it hard to fast from food, but I might try and challenge myself to fast from other things, whether it's um, social media or TV, and go, when I would normally just turn to that, I'm going to turn to God, so I depend on him rather than my TV fix for the day. So I think fasting does have a place, but let's not make it a rule that says I must do this at this time each year or whenever we do it. Let's use it as something that can helpfully point us and depend on God. And I think that's really helpful because, you know, we've got many more things now that actually we might need to fast from, not Mm. necessarily food, Um, which for them probably was the one thing that they could stop doing to remind themselves to be dependent on the Lord. Mm. We've probably got lots of other things, like you say, social media, phones, TV, whatever. Yeah. 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 Okay, um, next question. Does Jesus saying that the old is incompatible with the new mean that we should ignore the law, that it isn't part of Christianity? Um, No, I don't think it means we should ignore the law. Um, As you'll have heard me say quite a few times, Jesus doesn't come to ignore the law. He comes to fulfill the law. And so we see, and as we work through Mark, we'll see what that will look like. So, for example, there are times when Jesus says, remember that, that is no longer relevant. And so later on in Mark, we see Jesus get rid of the food laws, for example, that the people of God were held to. He says, no, it's, it's not about that anymore. But so often, when Jesus comes to fulfill the law, he'll take it and, and show how it's, how it's fulfilled in him. And often he shows that what's at the heart of the law is your heart. It's not so much about what you are doing, it's about your heart's motivation behind it. So later on in Mark, when he talks about the food laws, he actually says, no, what is more important is what goes into your heart, because what goes into your heart then flows out in the rest of your life. And and also you see at other times when he takes an Old Testament law, he changes it to say, it's not just about what you do, your actions, it's about your heart attitude behind it. 
So if you look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he'll take a law like um, do not murder, and he says, no, it's not just don't do that, it's don't be angry with someone in your heart. So he takes the law and fulfills it and shows us what that looks like to live as someone in Christ. Thank you very much. Now, um, we are running out of time, so I thought we'd stop with a positive one, as it were. <laughs> How can we stop ourselves from being so rule-centered and look more to Christ? Great, great question. Um, I, th I think two, two things I want to say, and I'd love to hear if, if you have anything to add, Caroline, um, as you read the question. Uh, one, I, <laughs> I want to see Christ more. And so what I mean by that is... Um, I just want to make sure every day I'm spending time with Jesus and I'm learning more about him. Every day I'm looking to get my Bible open and just see Christ more. That might be something new to you and something you really struggle with. So as I plugged in the sermon, let me plug again, get hold of the Advent book and, and just a short passage, a short one or two pages every morning to, as a focus on Jesus. So you're seeing Jesus more and I say that so that it will shape and motivate your day. And so, look, Jesus still calls us to obedience, to obey him. But let Jesus be your motivation to obey him, not just doing the right thing or not doing the right thing. And so as I come to obey Jesus in my day, I choose not to do some things and I choose to do other things. Let Jesus be my motivation that goes, look, I'm not going to do that, not because I'm held to some kind of law or, um, how did the question put it? Uh, it's disappeared. Oh, it's disappeared. How yeah. did that happen? Oh, um, not so I'm held to some kind of law or um, what I should be doing, but actually going, look, I want to please my saviour. I want to live for him today. So that is going to shape my decision to do or to not do that. Yeah, I think, the, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the only way we won't go to legalism is if we see who Jesus is. And the more that I see who Jesus is and how amazing he is and what he's done for me, that stops me falling to legalism. Mm -hmm. um, because... And I, one of the ways I think we do that is actually talking to others, Christians, about Jesus um, and chatting to them and asking them what Jesus has been doing in their life and what they, what they love about him. I think talking to, you know, I was saying to you earlier, I met up with a group of friends. I've been meeting them with twice a year for 30 years and seeing them still loving Jesus after 30 years has given me a good kick up the backside. But am I, I am still loving him, but how much more? So it's meeting with people and getting Christians to encourage us mm. about who Jesus is and, and why it is that we want to follow him, why we want to obey him. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and the more we love him, I think the more we'll do that, not out of legalism, but out of joy. And yeah, exactly. And that's what I want to finish on. The, I think it's just reappeared. How can we stop ourselves being rule-centered, look more to Christ? Look to Christ and know the joy that comes from knowing him and let that joy, and Christ talks about the joy filling our hearts so it overflows in our life. And so, and so it stops being about what I should or shouldn't do. Mm. And it's about following Jesus, which he tells us is the best way to live, the most fulfilled way to live. Mm. Great. Thank you very much.